I believe in Christ, he is my king. With all my heart to him I'll sing. I'll raise my voice in praise and joy, in grand amens my tongue employ. Scriptures reveal the divine desires of the Lord in our behalf. Each of us should have a burning desire to search the scriptures diligently and daily to seek the will of the Lord in our life. Brothers and sisters, on very thin pages, thick with meaning, are some almost hidden scriptures. Hence we are urged to search, feast, and ponder. If you are lonely, please know you can find comfort. If you are discouraged, please know you can find hope. If you are poor in spirit, please know you can be strengthened. If you feel you are broken, please know you can be mended. Welcome to Go and Do. This week, Feely and I are joined by my sister Sarah as we study chapters 11 through 17 of the Book of Mosiah. In these chapters, we get to talk about Abinadi, one of the heroes of the Book of Mormon. We talk about how we get to stand for truth, even when we have to stand alone, and how we have to apply the gospel to our hearts in order to truly understand God's word. We see the example of Abinadi of how the Lord sustains his servants, even through persecution and trials. We also learned that Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father are two distinct beings, and that Christ was our Heavenly Father's perfect representative here on the earth. Abinadi, through his teachings, helps us understand a little bit better of how they work in tandem, and how they are one purpose. And then to wrap up, we talk about how many of us and our family, friends and family uh, may face social pressures to have them compromise their standards. This is another social distancing quarantine edition of Go and Do. We hope you enjoy it. One thing I noticed this time around that I don't think I've noticed before was he first came and told them uh, he, he warned them and then he came back two years later. Yeah. yeah. And so I always, when I thought of the, that story, I always thought it was, you know, he just came and it all happened. There was a two-year gap in there where, you know, I think the people could have been humbled or, you know, but they just chose to, I think it was because they were prospering. It wasn't until the Nephites showed, I mean, the Lamanites showed that they started to, well, even then, it talks about the little victories they had over the Lamanites, and they thought, oh, we're so mighty, there's no way all these bad things could happen to us. I mean, if he's supposed to, he's teaching them, why would he come in disguise like that? I don't know. That was kind of weird. Obviously, he knew that, what I think was that he probably uh, was preaching the before and then started to feel the heat and knew that he was in danger and so kind of went into hiding or something and then he came back after two years because he's like you know what i gotta get out there i have to teach this because it's getting really bad it's getting really bad people don't have any compass they don't have anyone to guide them i gotta get back out there and start talking again and so he probably planned on doing it little by little and I don't know, maybe <laughs> to smaller groups or something, but when they found him, they got him, you know? Well, it says, I'm trying to find it um, right off the bat. It talks about how King Noah rules in wickedness. His father was not wicked, though. You know? And it, it, yeah. differ- it differentiates in their saying, that King Noah did not uh, do these things. And so in verse um, 5 of chapter 11, it says, For he put down all the priests that had been consecrated by his father, and he consecrated new ones in in their stead, such as were lifted up in the pride of their hearts. Yea, and thus they were supported in their laziness and in their idolatry and in the 
in their whoredoms by the taxes which King Noah had put upon the people. Thus did the people labor exceedingly to support iniquity. And then it keeps going into their their fine things and gold and spacious thrones he built, uh, great worksmanship. And all of these things aren't necessarily bad, you know? Uh, it's good to have good worksmanship. It's nice to have nice things. But it was their intention, you know, to get gain at the expense of others, you know, yeah. to, to, to be... And then it goes into their concubines and, and their all the bad things they did. Um, but the thought I had was, it's interesting because this is kind of the first time we see a righteous king being followed by a wicked one. That That is kind of, that it isn't the Lamanites came over and overthrew them or, or did anything the like. It was within themselves. There was a falling away. And I think sometimes we forget that this can still happen nowadays. You can still run across a leader in the church who should know better, yeah. but does not or chooses to act in iniquity or to abuse his priesthood or his authority or his station. And that does happen still to this day. And it happened then and it happens now. And sometimes we can feel, oh, if the church wasn't true, these people wouldn't have done these terrible things. And that's not always the case because they still have agency. Well, I think it's also they're, they're equating wealth with success. And they're thinking we're, we don't need to change. We're doing just fine because we have all these riches and we have this and that. And... Those things aren't mutually exclusive. They can coexist. Like having a spiritually righteous people that is wealthy, that's possible. And it happened, you know, when we talk about uh, King Benjamin, they lived in peace for three years and everyone was fine. They were prospering. Um, but there's a difference between prospering, like we've talked about before, and being rich. And I think they were probably dismissive of Abinadi. Because they didn't have immediate needs. They weren't like, gosh, you know, my life is really hard. My life is really difficult. Even the people, they it said that they had to pay basically 20% of everything to the king just so that he could live a luxurious lifestyle. But even they weren't like going around complaining about how life was so hard and our king is unfair. I think they probably saw it as our king and his lifestyle is a, a representation of our of our success and our wealth you know he represents all of us and if he's wealthy and living the high life then that means that we are also um, successful and so i think they felt a little bit invincible and i think that uh, benedai was going in and saying hey you know what you need to adhere to the commandments and you need to be more righteous and people were kind of like why you know, things are going pretty good. Like, why do we need to do that? And it's coming from he's coming from kind of a higher plane of thinking of, you know, what about your eternal salvation? What about your spiritual well-being? And they're just more like, look, I got food. I got clothes. What else do I need? Um, In verse seven, what I I don't know, what really stuck out was the last little bit that said that they did speak flattering things unto them. Um, so it's kind of going along with what you're saying. Like, they're not like, why would they want to change if like everything that's being told to them and their whole life is just kind of great. Um, and then in comes Abinadi going, you guys need to shape up. Like this is like, we all need to shape up. Like this isn't good. <laughs> we got to do better. And, and they're just like, whatever, we're fine. We're living our best lives. It kind of reminds me of of when you, it reminds me of my son when I tell him to wash his hands and he doesn't think about it because he feels fine and he doesn't see the germs, you know? And then when he gets sick, he's so miserable. And and I just, part of me is like wanting to say, well, if you were to wash your hands, you know? <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of like that, like they they don't feel 
that they're in danger. They don't feel Abinadi's words are true because they're living this life that's, to them, really good. Right? Yeah, and I think a lot of the problem is that it wasn't just indifference. They weren't just like, oh, you know, be quiet, Abinadi, just go away. It was literally like they felt, you're messing up us up. You're causing problems around here. Everything's going fine. And you're coming in here telling everybody they've got to shape up. You know what? We're going to kill you or whatever. You know, there's this danger that he's feeling um, that he really had to make sure that he still represented the message that the Lord wanted to share with the people, even despite the fact that he was kind of constantly under threat. And I, the, the manual kind of asks us if, there, if we can think of other people um, that stood for truth this way. What are other people, what are there other examples of people that have, um, despite maybe social or physical or whatever kind of pressure, have stood up to that and represented the truth? And the first person that comes to mind is Joseph Smith when he says, you know, I knew I had seen a vision and I could not deny it. Even though people made fun of him, persecuted him, whatever, he knew that he'd seen it and he wasn't going to negate that. But there's other examples. I don't know. Well, the first section it says of the lesson, it says, I can stand for truth even when I stand alone. And then it mentions, imagine how discouraging it must have been for Abinadi to cry repentance to a people who did not seem at all interested in changing their wicked ways. And he was rejected again and again, and he never gave up. So, I mean, you can think about this in school. At work, there are, everyone has an opportunity or will be challenged for your beliefs. And it's not so much, it's not always as black and white as, oh, you believe in God? Well, I know. What do you think about that? If you don't change your mind, I'm going to run you over with my car. You know, it's not <laughs> like that kind of example. Most of the time, most of the time it's with subtle, small things. And a lot of it, I think people are threatened when you are different than they are especially yeah. when they're doing wrong because their conscience pricks at them and they must silence you in order to silence their conscience. Yeah. And that's what this feels a lot like is because then they take them to the king when he's among the people and they say, oh, look what he said about you. Are you going to stand for this? Even, even when Noah decides, you know, maybe we should just uh, tell, shake our finger at him and tell him to go away and leave us alone. And then they say, this cannot be. He's disparaged our king, you know, and he <laughs> takes it up a level. And, and it's almost like you're, you're threatened by these people when they stand up for what's right. And, and everyone can do that. I mean, um, you know, it's from the smallest thing to everyone leaves their shopping cart in a parking spot. Well, you can go put yours away, you know, and yeah. even though that's not of great consequence, it's kind of like, you know what the right thing to do is, you do it. Just because everyone else does the shortcut doesn't mean that you should take the shortcut, right? Yeah, I think um, even when he's taken in, in front of the king, of, in front of King Noah and the priests, and they challenge him, they ask him these questions, well, what does this mean and what does that mean? And, you know, what are you teaching the people? He doesn't really immediately answer their questions. He doesn't say, well, this is what that scripture means. He eventually gets to it, but his first response, I think, I think he knew what was coming. I think he knew that they were going to interrogate him, and I think he knew that inevitably they were probably going to kill him. At that point, it had gone too far. You know, it had gone, uh, gotten to the point where there was, uh, there was no turning back. They had already brought him in, in front of everybody. And the people were kind of demanding that the king do something. And if he would have just let him go at that point, it probably would have been a, a symbol of weakness, right? So I think everyone kind of knew what the inevitable outcome of all of this was. But I think he spiritually prepared for that moment and went in there, and he basically lets them have it. I mean, look at verse 25. It says, And now Abinadi said unto them, Are you priests, and pretend to teach this people and to understand the spirit of prophesying? and yet desire to know of me what these things mean? And then in 27, you have not applied your hearts to understanding, therefore ye have not been wise. Therefore what teach ye this people? And then verse 29, And again he said unto them, 
if you teach the law of Moses, why do you not keep it? Like he's just basically like, if you don't even if you don't even know the answers to this stuff, what are you actually teaching the people? And if you say that you teach the law of Moses, why aren't you living it? Like he's at that point, I think he's just like, well, I'm just gonna say it. I'm gonna say everything I need to say, and there's nothing to fear because I know what's gonna happen to me, and I'm okay with it. The way they argue is interesting because back at verse uh, in chapter twelve, in that same chapter you're in. Um, verse 13, you know, and now, O king, what great evil hast thou done? What great sins have thy people done that we should be condemned of God or judged of this man? It's very defensive, you know. O king, behold, we are guiltless, and thou, king, have not sinned. So they're they're making themselves feel better. And then they're kind of trying to twist you know, the intention of what he's trying to tell them. Hey, you guys need to repent. You know, stop doing these bad things. You need to go back to what you knew, what your father taught you, how to live, how to reign. And then they kind of just kind of deflect all of that. And then, like you said, Abinadi just kind of cuts right through that because he kind of asks them, why do you do the things you do? Why do you <laughs> believe, you know, what do you think that uh, the great one was when he says, do you think that if you teach the law of Moses, why do you not keep it? Why do you set your hearts on riches? Why do you commit whoredoms and spend your strength with harlots and cause this people to commit sin? And the Lord has sent me to prophesy against his people. You know, know ye not that I speak the truth. You know, it's kind of just kind of cuts through all that vanity and fake defense they kind of mount up to kind of the truth of it and then in 31 where he says and it came to pass that ye shall be smitten for your iniquities for ye have said that ye teach the law of Moses and what know ye concerning the law of Moses doth salvation come by the law of Moses what say ye and then he goes on to explain how it's not because the law and we see this a lot like sometimes within ourselves when we hear a conference talk or, or we hear something we want to say oh but i do this and i do that and i yeah. do this and i go home teaching and i can and i do and i help and i and and it's and we have to ask kind of ourselves these questions why do you do that do you do it to be seen of men do you do it because you really feel like you want to help and volunteer because one will serve you well and the other won't profit you anything you know, and it's not in the doing of things. It's not a list of how many things can you do. It's more of becoming like who, who really are you? I have a few thoughts. Kind of going along with that, they're convincing themselves that they're not as bad off as they are. And we do that. All the, at least I do. I don't know. I'm not going to speak for everybody. I do that <laughs> all the time. And especially like you said, during general conference is like the biggest, the biggest push to be better. But at sometimes it's tempting to just be like, I'm doing really well right now. Like, I don't really need to change that much because in comparison to these other people, like I'm not doing that bad, which on one hand is kind of true, but it's, <laughs> never <laughs> like the correct answer i think um you should always we should we should always trying to be trying to be um better and so that how it's like so repetitive in that little spot in 13 14 15 of like you haven't done anything all that bad we haven't done anything all that bad we're strong in 15 <laughs> we are strong we shall not come into bondage like that just made me laugh when i was reading that because it's like yeah, we say that to ourselves all the time to like justify what we do to feel better about ourselves. And then I also love how Abinadi does something that my dad always teaches that we should do, always preaches, and it's start with the most basic stuff. Don't go into teaching when you're when you're teaching stuff or teaching a concept or whatever. Don't try to make it so deep and so complicated start basic and then you can move on from there. And I love how he just like starts with the 10 commandments, which is something that 
everybody had for a long time and we have had <laughs> forever and just starts at the beginning starts with number one thou shalt have no other god before me and then kind of explains it right but goes into that and starts with teaches the basics because when you have the basics you can then expand upon that and and really understand like the core of what you believe and that's what my dad always teaches he always teaches teach the doctrine don't make it overly complicated more or more complicated than it needs to be and it's a lot more i've found that it's a lot more powerful when you're just what do we believe let's lay it out boom 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 and luckily we have these 10 things that <laughs> are laid out for it yeah I think that's that's really important because, you know, that second section, I need to apply my heart to understanding God's Word. It's difficult to understand God's Word if you don't understand the foundation. And you need to understand those, those initial principles first. And when I think of applying the Gospel to my heart, I think of Scripture mastery. You know, back when in seminary when we used to do Scripture mastery, we used to memorize these Scriptures, and it was like they'd set a goal— you know, by such and such a day, we want to all be able to recite it as a class. And that was great because it familiarized people with the scriptures in ways that maybe they hadn't been before. But there's a also a danger that you just memorize words. And in the end, what does it what does it actually mean? Well, you can pat yourself on the back and say, I memorized that scripture and now I know it. And it's like, okay, well, how does it apply? And what does it mean? What is it talking about? What's the context of that scripture? Getting past just memorizing of things and and knowing the basics, but then knowing how those basics are applied. And it takes a little bit of depth. And I think that, that that's what a testimony is, really. How can you testify of something that you don't necessarily believe in, right? You can know it, but when do you start to believe it and apply it to yourself? And that's that's really what he's getting at. He's like... Where are, where are your hearts? It's in your riches. That's what you're caring about. That's what you're worried about. And King Noah has surrounded himself with these yes men, these guys that will just prop him up and tell him, you know, no, no, we're strong. We're good. Everything's fine. He's not looking to grow. He's not looking to develop as a leader or as a person. He just wants to be told everything's fine. And that's reassuring, but it doesn't give us any opportunity for, for growth. It's very similar to what Christ was accused of by the Pharisees and Sadducees. They came, oh, they always, they wanted to trip him up. You know, what is the greatest commandment? They would ask him, you know, and then they would say, and, and even Christ himself, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. And I think Abinadi is kind of in a same, similar situation here. In, in chapter 13, verse 29 and 30, he explains to them a little bit about that. He says, uh, well, in 28, he also, you know, towards the end, it says, he talks about how Christ will come and, and salvation doth not come by the law alone. Where it is not for the atonement, which God himself shall make for the sins and iniquities of his people. They must unavoidably perish, notwithstanding the law of Moses. So he's saying, you can keep the law and you can do all that. But if Christ doesn't do what he says he's going to do and he comes and fulfills the atonement, you're still going to perish. The law of Moses isn't going to save you. And then he says, he explains why we needed the law of Moses, which is, which is another thing that the Book of Mormon helps us see more insight into of, of the purpose and the reason for the law of Moses in addition to what the Bible explains. And in 29, it says, And now I say unto you that it was expedient that there should be a law given to the children of Israel, yea, even a very strict law, for they were a stiff-necked people, quick to do iniquity, and slow to remember the Lord their God. Therefore, there was a law given to them, a law of performances and of ordinances, a law which they were to observe strictly from day to day to keep them in remembrance of God and their duty towards Him. I think... I really like that because it really makes, for me, it makes the Bible and the Old Testament make a little bit more sense to me that that the law of Moses wasn't everything. And it was tailored to them to help them remember. 
And all of these things that they had, oh, you can only take so many steps. You have to do this. You can only do that. You know, all these things that seem very micromanaging were only like training wheels to help them learn how to pedal. So then you can take the training wheels off and you can pedal. And you can see kind of that progression of learning when you look at kids, you know, they learn, you know, something very basic. Oh, don't do that. Don't touch this. Don't touch that. Until as they grow, you can then start to reason with them and they can understand why you don't touch a stove, why you don't stand by the window pushing on the screen, you know, you know, and, and then to the point where you can let them go and they, they can understand the why and they themselves become agents unto themselves. And I think sometimes we get stuck in the La Moses mentality, a lot of things with our worship. It's important, but it's not the end of everything. The, the little part at the end of the first paragraph that was, um, the commandments were not written in the heart. So they're talking about um, the priests. The commandments were not written in their hearts and they did not, and they had not applied their hearts under, to understanding them. As a result, their lives remained unchanged. That was like the definition of Sarah in um, <laughs> in like high school because I don't know, especially I think I feel like when it, where I grew up, it's super uncool to be LDS and because everyone is um, and it's super uncool to um, go to seminary and like it and it's super uncool to live the standards of the church. And not that people didn't do it, but that it was like frowned upon socially, right? And so in high school, I don't know, that really, like I I kind of had a hard time with that. And and I didn't, I tried to reject as much as I felt comfortable (laughs) the, the, the church and I didn't reject it completely, of course, but I tried to, you know, push the limits that is typical of a teenager but I also at the same time that I'm like wanting to not be like everybody else because that was socially the cool thing to do I was also in my head like wondering why do I not have a testimony why do I not feel strongly about this why is this not changing my life why is this not doing what everybody says it's supposed to do of have a huge like come to Jesus, I guess you could say, moment. Um, And it wasn't really until I got to the MTC where I had that, like, what are you doing, Sarah, (laughs) type of thing where, I don't know, I was about to go teach something that I I wasn't 100% sure on myself. And so, you know, the MTC is 24-7 gospel. And so it's like, if you're not wanting to do this, like either start wanting or go home. And so that's when I really, I guess, put in the work and put in the time um, and the effort to apply my heart, which I think is a cool phrase, um, to the understanding of the gospel. And then it was it was finally able to, like it says, change your change my life. And I just. That just is something that I thought about when I read that little section. Uh, the next section is the Lord will sustain his servants in his work. And uh, it has this kind of read Mosiah 13, 1 through 9. And I, I just think, man, Abinadi is like a spiritual powerhouse. He, I, I, feel, I honestly feel like he's kind of fed up with these priests and with the king and He's had years of being persecuted. He's been criticized. He's been diminished. He's been belittled by the people for preaching the word of God. Um, And I think he knows that now he's really being heard by the people who need to hear it most. I don't think he necessarily had an audience with the priests and with the king before. It was mostly just uh, probably street preaching or maybe in the churches or whatever. But now he's basically been called to the king, and this is his chance, and he knows it. 
he he says in verse 9 of, of chapter 13, I will finish my message, and then it matters not whether I go, if it so be that I'm saved. And I think that he knows that with his testimony and his body of work and his dedication to the gospel and serving God, despite all the suffering that he's been through, and you know, it probably hasn't been a great life, he probably doesn't have a whole lot of support, he knows that he will be saved, and he knows that he's ready for whatever is coming. Because he's like, I've done my part, and I know that even though I can't sit back here and say, look how amazingly successful I am, and look how many people have gotten baptized or have been reactivated, or look how uh, wealthy I am or how much respect I have. He can't really say any of that. But what he can say is, look, I'm going to say what I need to say, and after that it doesn't matter because I know that I'm saved. And to have that kind of confirmation, I think, is, first of all, very difficult because, you know, we have to endure to the end. And I think he knows that this is pretty much the end for him. And so he's basically saying, I've endured. I'm not going to back down, even in the face of overwhelming opposition. I'm going to keep saying it. And I know that this will be, this is what the Lord wants me to say. And this is what he wants uh, me to do. So I, I thought that was really cool. And I think when we think about it as a, in our in our context, no matter what opposition there is and no matter how difficult things are, we have to think bigger picture. We have to think bigger than just the moment of suffering, bigger than just the moment of disappointment or rejection from friends or family or whoever it might be. And we or embarrassment if it's, you know, everyone seems to be okay with doing this, but I feel like it's in contrary to my standards. I just have to say, Oh, I, I'm gonna pass today or uh, you guys go ahead or whatever, just to make sure that you know it doesn't matter what kind of uncomfortable situation or, or disappointment I go through, I got to make sure I stay true to this because the, the goal in the end is worth much, much more. I think, I think that's really wise because, I mean, you look at Abinadi and he had every opportunity to feel like a failure. You know, we, we often think of the sons of Mosiah and Alma the Younger on their missionary ventures, converting an entire nation. You know, But they themselves, it wasn't that easy. They also had their struggles. And they, but, or, or we think about the early, early um, pioneer Wilford missionaries. Woodruff. Yeah, they, they go, they, they just stand, set foot in England and 30 people want to be baptized right away, right? <laughs> you, know, you know, but... That's not the case in, in Abinadi. If you if you think about all he could do was control his agency. All he could do was be obedient. And he was successful. And we can view his success now because we know Alma ran away. And I think it was, I was listening one time, I think it was John, by the way, I was listening to him explaining this, this scenario. And he kind of said, how Abinadi could have gotten down on himself. And, and the one guy that heard me and stood up for me ran away, and there go the priests to go kill him, you know, the, the yeah. guards. So even that, you know, and, and you kind of paint this picture of how you can really feel like you weren't successful. But as we continue to read the story, we see that the Lord preserved Dalma. And from that, more people came. And not just that, but the people of King Noah eventually repented as well. And they came, and they both came through different paths. And ultimately, both of these groups were saved or brought back to, you know, King Mosiah and, and, and all these things. And I think it's important for us, like, that we remember that because we could go and try to do our ministering assignment and that person could not be interested. And our experience may not make for a wonderful uh, enzyme article of how, you know, <laughs> through my meatloaf, I saved the family. You know, it, it might not happen at all, but we just don't know. You know, we had, I remember the story in my mission, we had all of our Book of Mormons that we gave away in our mission we used to stamp the fr the one of the front pages with the mission address, office, and phone number, and a little tiny message, you know. And um, we had a guy one time call into the mission office 
wanting to have the missionaries come teach him because he worked at a land field and he found the Book of Mormon there uh, in, mm-hmm. in, in the garbage in the landfill. And so he picked it up. He thought it was interesting. And he read the little testimony and he saw the number. He called it and he rang in the mission home and he got the missionaries to come over. And something so simple like that, where the original missionary who handed that to a person with high hopes, that whole storyline may have ended. And, you know, and you never know, but eventually someone else can can pick it up. And, you know, it's kind of like you're not in this work alone. The Lord is there. The Lord is there with Abinadi. He's there with Alma. He's even there with with everyone, just the Holy Ghost trying to help people to to change. And it's really up to agency. And we can't put a limit on our efforts based on the expected outcome that we value and think that should happen that way. Right. That little part, um, well, in the manual, how it says, so it says on the one hand, um, the Lord supports his servants. And then on the other hand, the Lord also allowed Abendai to be persecuted, imprisoned, and martyred for his testimony. I don't know. That really, like, hit home for me because I I served a mission, but I came home before the 18 months. And it's, I think, especially where I live in Utah County, uh, it's very... Um, looked down upon uh, if you come home early and you get a lot of uh, I don't know I guess judgment um, as to like what like why are you here (laughs) type of thing which is normal but anyways it really for me personally kind of has messed with my head (laughs) Um, and I've been home now for almost like five and a half years and so it's kind of a process, you know, to kind of be okay with that. But I don't know, that kind of, it kind of just gives you, gives me like reassurance. Like I, I'm not saying that I'm anything compared to Abinadi, obviously. And I was not imprisoned and I was certainly not martyred. Um, but I did feel a little bit of persecution um, and from, from the outside and especially internally. And I was kind of like, my my thoughts were have always been or were <laughs> past tense. I was doing the best thing I possibly could have done at the time, possibly could have been doing at the time. Like I was, you know, the Lord's servant. Like I had the 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 placa, the name tag. I had the whole thing, and I was like doing really really well. And then all of a sudden, I I come home, and so I was like. Like those two things kind of don't make sense, but it's like the Lord knows what he's doing, you know? (laughs) And I don't know when, when we look at it and especially I bet if like Abinadi, well, I guess if he hadn't been killed, he could have been, (laughs) he could have looked at it. Like, why is he letting this happen to me? Um, Why is, why is the Lord allowing this, persecution to to come to me and why do I have to like be imprisoned why do I why 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 but like if he hadn't gone through all of that like Alma probably wouldn't have been as touched as he was and then everything that happened after the fact probably wouldn't have happened the same and so everyone is pretty much benefits I guess even to this day that he was so strong you know, to, to, to go through these things. And I also think of like the missionaries who are now having to come home because of like the virus that's going on right now and how hard that is. I know a couple of, I know a few um, who have come home early and they're just kind of like, why is, you know, the Lord allowing this to happen? But there's always like a better reason, a higher and holier (laughs) thing that maybe we can't see and most of the time we can't see in the moment when bad things happen to us. But like the Lord allows things to happen um, that in our opinion aren't necessarily the greatest, but because he has a better thing planned, you know, for the future. So 
I just thought that that little um, sentence, like in the in the manual, just was really impactful. Yeah, I think Abinadi has a deep connection with the Savior because he's also suffered quite a bit for the same cause of truth. And while Abinadi didn't suffer for our sins by any means, he did suffer in the cause of that truth. And because of the sins of the people that were around him, he suffered as well and their actions towards him. So like you said, there's this extra level of understanding of what the Savior means for him because he's been through all of that. And that's what he's trying to transmit to those priests and the king and everybody is saying, you know, the Savior, the reason why Jesus Christ is so important and the law of Moses is is pushing us towards him is because it's only through him that we can be saved and the things that he will do. And we can be great people. You can even stop doing all of your sins, but if you don't ever repent and if you don't ever act like Christ would, it's not enough. And so I think that's one reason why he's really you know, that next section of Jesus Christ suffered for me. That's that's why we we're talking about that. That's what that's really what his message is in the end. It's to call them to repentance, but why? So that they can come to a realization that Jesus Christ is their savior and that that will change all the behavior that they have. If they recognize that and they start looking towards what does this mean for me long term, then they're not going to be worried about riches. They're not going to be worried about, you know, wives and concubines and all of that. Your perspective changes and your priorities change drastically. Like, um, I like what you were saying before when, you know, because I, I also think about, you know, how we feel sometimes when our, we have this, these, I don't know, these LDS, Mormon, Church of Jesus Christ, traditional way that things should happen, success criterias, you know, oh, you should... Yeah, you should be a little rebellious when you're 15. And 16, you have an Alma the Younger experience. You clean up your act. You go on a mission. You go on that mission. Uh, you have a great time. You come back. You get married. You have kids. Uh, you know, you serve. You you get a truck. And you can go to scout camp and take the kids. You know, we have like these this way that that uh, this is how this is how life should be. And And oftentimes I feel it. Like it's nice, and it should play out something like that for most people, but it doesn't mean it's the only way. And I think one of the changes that that the church has been making really strongly to a more worldwide church has been to get rid of these, this is the way the gospel, like the Utah way is the gospel, the way the gospel should be lived or the Utah programs is the way that the gospel should be administered and so forth. And this come follow me method um, has really helped us to reduce and simplify what really is the important part of the gospel, you know? And, you know, I think a lot about my bishop because he was called to be bishop right before this coronavirus thing, thing happened. And I see him every now and then when I go walking with my kids and he'll be out there with his family and he'll say hi and stuff. And, you know, at a distance, you know, you can't really talk much and do anything. But I think here's a guy who, and I know this guy, he's so good. He's such a good person. Here's a guy who's just been given responsibility for the small group of people. And the next step is well, you can't meet with them at church. You can't meet with them in person. You know, <laughs> you, uh, go be a successful bishop. You know, I, I, I think about that and I think, man, he doesn't have it easy. And you could easily get down on yourself. Or you could say, hey, I'm doing the best that I can. And, and that's, that's I, I really like good good life, like progressing through life is a mixture between seeing where you came from and seeing where you need to be 
and balancing that out correctly. Because one, if you, if you if you compare yourself to who you were five years ago and you have improved and all you do is dwell upon that, you could decide that you're fine and you don't need to improve and you don't need to do anything. But also if you see, oh, I need to be perfect. Oh, look at President Nelson. I need to be like him. You know, if you reach too far, you can also get carried away into being way too hard on yourself. And I think of two parables all the time to help me keep this in in check. And the first one is a parable of the talents. The, the guy who was given one, the guy who was given three, and the guy who was given five. And the one that was given the most buried his because they, I have the most. I need to bury them. And the ones that were given one and two, they multiplied them. And the Lord was pleased with the increase. He wasn't worried about quantity. Who had the most, you know? And the other parable that I really like to think about is the parable of the laborers that all come up, come to help the Lord in the vineyard at different times of the day, and they all get the same reward. And I like to think about those two when I try to measure is my effort worthwhile? Am I doing what I should be doing? And how do I keep myself from comparing myself to the guy who has five talents? He may have five, but only gain one more. And I may, may have one, but only gain two. You know, in, in the long scheme of things, I think it doesn't matter. You just need to improve. And I think Satan uses that a lot to, to, to be to have us compare ourselves to each other and, and to make us feel like our effort isn't good enough. And the Lord doesn't, I mean, there was a, there was a quote I remember. He, he um, it was, uh, man, I can't, I can't remember. But it was something along like the Lord doesn't ask for our capability. He asked for our availability. Yeah, and with the, with the priests and with King Noah, I think kind of like Sarah was saying earlier, they they really like to reassure themselves that they've got it made, that they're kind of, we're okay. And so I think first, Satan makes you compare yourself to others. It makes you find people that are supposedly not doing as well so that you can kind of feel good about yourself. And then it gives you a false sense of security. You know, well, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good. You know, I don't need to make that many changes. And that's exactly what has happened to King Noah. I, I think King Noah really here, I mean, he's an antagonist, but he's also kind of a victim because he's surrounded himself with these people that are taking advantage of him being the leader. He inherited the kingdom from his father. And then I think he surrounded himself with the wrong people that started to benefit from him and wanted to maintain and protect their station, right? I want to be a priest. They they can live a nice fat life, and all I got to do is make this guy feel like everything's fine. And so when you look at that, and you kind of use as an example, make sure you're surrounding yourself with people that will be honest with you, people that will encourage you to be the best you can be, and not people that are just like, oh man, it's all good. We're all just a bunch of mess misfits. You know, we're all just messed up people, and so it is what it is. No, you want to surround yourself with people that'll be like, "Yeah, we're all kind of messed up, but we can." I'm here for you, and and I know that you're there for me, and we can push ourselves together. Um, doctrinally speaking, there's an interesting thing that comes up here. The next section is how is Jesus Christ both the Father and the Son, and Abinadi kind of the way he's the way he says it could come across as if he's saying they're one person. Could be misunderstood that way. But basically, the way I understand it is he's saying that Christ represents the Father here on earth, and that they're so unified in their vision of the plan and execution of that plan that they might as well be considered the same. Mm -hmm. Like there's no difference between what Christ is saying and what God is saying. And so... He's saying, for all intents and purposes, they are of one mind and one purpose. But we know that they're two separate individuals. And this, you know, it started in the pre-existence when Christ 
submitted himself fully to the will of the Father, saying, Here am I, send me, and the glory be thine. He's basically saying, let me go and execute this plan. Let me carry it out, but the glory is yours. And we see there that the, the, the purpose and the cause is the same, but there are still two different people. Yeah, that last line in the paragraph in the manual, I think explains, at least for me, like really well, like I get it, where it says Jesus Christ is both the son of God and the perfect earthly representation of God the Father. Like, I don't know, that just makes perfect sense to me because they're not the same person, but he's representing, he's the perfect representation, perfect earthly representation of God the Father. It gives us a couple of scriptures to cross-reference. One in the New Testament is John chapter 8, verse 28 through 29. And in um, Christ is talking here, and he says, Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught, and I speak these things. And then 29, where he says, And he that sent me is with me, and the Father hath not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. You know, And that was one of the things. I think Elder Holland did a really good job a couple conferences ago in, where he, he spoke especially on this topic, how uh, to know the Son is to know the Father. That one of the roles of, that Christ came not, was not just to do the atonement, but also to come show us the love of the Father. And there are several more. If at the end of this section, there's quite a few scriptures in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that, that reference uh, Christ speaking how he was sent to do the will of the Father. I think an interesting thing that happens is also just like he represents the Father, we can also represent him. And this happens like happened with the people of King Benjamin, where he said, you know, you've you've become repentant and to the point where you no longer desire to do sin. And so I'm going to give you that you're going to take upon yourselves the name of Christ. And Abinadi talks about how Christ's followers become his seed, almost like his children. Right. And that's because just like a child takes the family name. Uh, we take upon ourselves the name of Christ when we're reborn spiritually through him, whether it be baptism or even as members when we repent and when we remind ourselves that we should be the people of Christ. We have that opportunity by extension to be direct representatives of our Heavenly Father as well. Maybe not perfect earthly representations of him because we're not perfect, but we can still serve to carry out his plan. We can be his servants as well. And I think that that's a really important thing that Abinadi is pointing out. Christ may be the perfect representative of God on earth, but we can also represent him and we can be his servants here as well. Well, I think one of the truths that the simple truths that gets restored, especially through the restoration, through the first vision, was this very principle that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are two distinct beings, and that the Godhead is Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost, and that they are one in purpose, but three distinct individuals. And uh, I really like how in chapter 16, he kind of just breaks down the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, in the atonement. It goes through the fall through what would have happened if we wouldn't have been redeemed from the fall, to Jesus Christ, to his victory over death and sin, to the resurrection, through how we can change and um, change our carnal desires and our will because of these events. Um, and then it ends in 14 and 15 of that verse where he says, uh, therefore, if you teach a lot, Moses also teach that it is a shadow of those things which are to come. Teach them that the redemption cometh through Christ the Lord, who is the very eternal Father. Amen. And so he's a very good teacher, Abinadi, 
And I think that's really what, when, when, because Alma is the one that's probably writing what happened down. You know, he remembers all of these, but this is, you know, this is, I think, what the meat of what really touched Alma, I think, because right after he goes into Alma believes on these words and then he starts to teach in secret and so on. Yeah, I, I think uh, this next section is probably the most, I, I don't know, it's the actionable, um, the one the one that applies to the majority of people. Members of your family may be facing social pressure to compromise their standards. This comes up all the time. I think this is one of those things that whether you live in Utah or you live in New Zealand, there will always be social pressure to relax this or that or whether it's from friends or family or coworkers or whatever it may be to compromise standards. And I think that that's what made Abinadi so, so special. He was a, the right person at the right time to speak with boldness. And um, if you go around speaking with boldness just to everyone all the time, like the way he did kind of just calling them out for stuff, um, you become very judgmental. And you better be beyond reproach. Like you better be so, you better have yourself so sorted out that you have the right to speak that way. And most people do not. That boldness comes with uh, the direct charge and commandment of of Christ and well, our heavenly I Father. Think, I think he could be bold because he had been given authority to do right. so. Exactly, um, and that's different than seeing the beam in thy neighbor's eye and the moat in your own type of behavior. And it's also different. Boldness is not rudeness. Right. Um, sometimes we, oh, I'm just very bold. No, you're just very rude. And nobody's <laughs> told you. So get angry. Right. Yeah. Um, that's different, you know. He, he dedicated his life to preaching the gospel, and he'd been called as a prophet. I mean, that's that's the difference, Right. Um, that being said, in the in the Sunday School manual of Come Follow Me, there's a quote from President Russell Nelson. And he says, True disciples of Jesus Christ are willing to stand out, speak up, and be different from the people of the world. There's nothing easy or automatic about being becoming such powerful disciples. Our focus must be riveted on the Savior and his gospel. It is mentally rigorous to strive to look unto him in every thought. But when we do, our doubts and our fears flee. And I think that's, I mean, he's acknowledging, you know what, maintaining that level of intense devotion is very difficult. It's not easy. But like I've said before, it's not meant to be easy. It's meant to challenge us. And when we really, really try, like he said, our doubts and our fears flee. We're, we're not concerned about the little things. We know that if I'm righteous and I'm doing the best I possibly can, and I'm rem reminding myself to look to him in every thought, then he will help me take care of these little things, and I won't have any reason to fear in life. There's a lot of fear right now, I think, about a lot of different things, whether it's a virus or whether it's job loss or whether it's, you know, what kind of education are my children getting right now or whatever it may be. There's a lot of fear going on, and I think right now more than ever is an opportunity to really put into perspective what's most important and remember that if we if we remember not only about, you know, oh, I don't do that, I'm Mormon, but to say, I do this because I'm a member of the church, and I, I follow Christ the best I can because I'm a member of the church. I think that's really what we should be thinking. Yeah, that reminded me of my favorite scripture <laughs> in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not into thine own understanding. Um, in all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. So, like, how many times in life, and especially like you were saying right now, how there's so much um, insecurity, there's so much, like, things in question that we, we don't really know what's going on, um, and we don't feel... Um, secure in maybe a lot of things but we can always trust in the Lord and he'll direct our paths and 
10 times out of 10, <laughs> the paths are true discipleship and the paths are, are, are the Book of Mormon and, 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 and the doctrine of the church. And um, that can give us the reassurance that we need in, in times that are, that are crazy, <laughs> like right now. Yeah, I think the key to that verse is in all thy ways acknowledge him. Isn't that what it says? Yeah. Not just in some ways, not just when it really matters, not just when you remember. In in every way, whenever and in everything you do, acknowledge his influence on on your life. And I think then and only then will he have the ability to direct thy paths. And if you're if you're feeling that social pressure and if you're feeling I don't know, maybe people are questioning why you do things or why you believe things. That's when you need to acknowledge the most and you need to really look to him and say, hey, I need to be strengthened. Help me out here. Help me maintain what I've committed to. The Book of Mormon is truly the keystone of our religion and that a man and woman will get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. And if you then go and do what he would have you do, your power to trust him will grow. And in time, you will be overwhelmed with gratitude to find that he has come to trust you. There is no end to the good we can do, to the influence we can have with others. Let us not dwell on the critical or the negative. Let us pray for strength. Let us pray for capacity and desire to assist others. Let us radiate the light of the gospel at all times and in all places that the Spirit of the Redeemer may radiate from us. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.